8 to 10 p.m. The Viewpoint with Ashraf Garda. The Viewpoint with Ashraf Garda. So that is that is really important stuff around funding with uh, Darlene Menzies from FinFind. So we'll have the podcast up tomorrow morning. Uh, check it out. Go to the SAFM website, safm.co.za. Now, normally we have a big picture story, and, and but but today is slightly different. It's it's a big picture, I suppose, into issues around media. But using a person, just one single person, who's going to tell us many things. And perhaps we're going to start with uh, what was worked like at the SABC all those years ago. Paul Slea, you may remember that name. Good chatting to you, and thanks for your time. Thank you very much for having me here. How many people still remember you in terms of your work at the SABC? I do bump into people. You know, I, I'm not based here. I've been based in the Middle East for yeah. the past 13 years. But when I come home, and South Africa will always be home, you know, mm-hmm. once a South African, always a South African, people come up to me. People don't always remember where they recognize me from. So sometimes I have people who come and say to me, I watch you all the time on Al Jazeera. And all I, the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I've never worked for Al Jazeera. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, but there are people definitely who remember me from the good old days when I worked for SABC3. I was working in the news department there. And I must just say, I mean, I haven't been to the SABC building for a couple of years. And it's really nice to come back because okay. I kind of cut my, my teeth on news journalism here. And I have wonderful memories about Luke's, the SABC. And, and how, how long were you here at the SABC? I was here from 19... 19- Five or 96 till 2001. Um, I worked with Jimmy Matthews. He was wonderful. I worked with Chris Bishop, who was also another wonderful mentor mm-hmm. of mine. Who did CNBC Africa now? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was when SABC Africa started. So that was my first job here. Oh, I, I started okay. with SABC wow. Africa and then I, I moved across to um, English News on SABC3. So, oh God, I feel so old. Well, there you are. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, if, if you remember Paula Steele, you may want to ask her questions, 0891104207. Maybe less about the SABC, quite honestly, because <laughs> we want to get to what she's doing right now. So you're in the Middle East. Where in the Middle East? And why did you choose to then work there for what, about 16 years? Am I right? Yeah. Um, like I said, I loved working in South Africa, but I found that the news became a little bit too localized for me. It's funny, you know, you should always, you should be careful of what you ask for, because sometimes you'll miss what you had when you move on. Mm. And I say that because I wanted to get into international broadcasting. And so I moved across to the Middle East simply because, and I went across without a job and I used up all my savings for, okay. it was it was when Yasser Arafat was dying and I, I had left the SABC and I remember saying to Jimmy Matthews, if I go there um, and I'm there, will you use me? And, and so I took a chance, but you, you, you need to take the chance. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and I wanted to get into international broadcasting. Russia Today, to work for a Russian channel based in the Middle East in English was not something that was on my agenda. Of course. So, those, so let's confirm. So, so you left unemployed. I left unemployed. Right. I left I left um, SABC because I wanted to break into international journalism. I went across to the Middle East because it just seemed logical. I found over the years, you know, when the Arab Spring broke out, a lot of young people went across to Egypt and, and unfortunately quite a few went to Syria and were killed and we can mm, talk about mm, that, mm. the dangers to young people trying to break into international journalism. But you need to find a story that's happening. And then you go there as a freelancer, and I was a freelancer. I was unemployed, and I was writing stories and emailing people. I, re- I, I remember when um, when Arafat died, I remember going to an internet cafe. In those days, there were still internet cafes okay, in Ramallah. Wow. Mm. And I remember just going through, and we didn't have emails and SMSs like we have today. And I had a printed edition of all the media in South Africa. And I remember sitting in an internet cafe for maybe four hours and just emailing everybody and saying and I'm talking South African media because that was the only connection I had Mm. and saying I'm here in Ramallah are you interested in using me Um, I was lucky because I was there when Russia Today started 
their their vision was a Russian news channel broadcasting in English. I don't know anything at that. I, I don't know any <laughs> Russian. If yeah. you said to me, "How's my Russian?" I grew up in Joburg. I know nothing. You still don't. Know. I still don't know. I, I know all the swear words. It's something yeah. about cameramen. <laughs> you know, they always feel they have okay. to teach you the swear words in another language. Um, and in those days, I knew nothing about Russian politics. I, at school, when I grew up, I was at Waverly Girls. I just remember once a year we used to do drills in case the Soviets attack, oh, my <laughs> and goodness. we used to go under okay. the tables. And I didn't Did think you? that that wow. would would lend itself in in a positive way to potential Russian employees. Um, and, and to be completely honest, when I first got the job with Russia Today, I thought it would be uh, an interim job because it didn't sound like anything, working for Russian television in yeah. English. And I was Just little, take it while you can get it in <laughs> Yeah. On, and, you know, I remember feeling a bit down. Like I'd worked so hard at my career at SABC to k- kind of go up the ladder. And here I was firstly unemployed for eight months and then working for a Russian news network. But it's it's been wonderful. It's been a wonderful experience. I... I was promoted to the position of Bureau Chief of the Middle East. And in the last odd 13 years, I've covered all the major conflicts. So I've been to Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, you know, any conflict, you name it, and I've been there, and it's, it feels like such a privilege. And you sound so excited when you say conflict. <laughs> yeah, we'll, I know. we'll talk about that contradiction <laughs> just now. Well, Paul Aslier with me, uh, 0891 So I'll say once of the SABC, can I say now, Bureau Chief for Russian TV for the middle, covering the Middle East? Correct. Okay, so Middle East Bureau Chief. If you're going to tweet me, hashtag SFM Viewpoint first up, then tag me, Ashraf Garda, tag SFM Radio, tag Paul Aslier. We're going to find you on Twitter, absolutely. Uh, if you want to post questions, or just comments, I certainly take it. As you know, the show is called The Viewpoint. What's yours? All eyes are on the quarterfinals of the NetBank Cup Lost 16. Two NFT opponents, Joma Cosmos and TS Galaxy, meet at Makulong Stadium this Sunday afternoon. Who wants it the most? Is it Cosmos or TM Sukazi's Galaxy Boys? I'm a football person. In my language, with the Royal I just love football. Catch Ezenkosi and TS Galaxy this Sunday on SABC One and your favorite SABC radio station at half past two. SABC Sport for the love of the game. Roses are red, violets are blue, and love is blind. And when it comes to matters of the heart, many are blinded by love. But there's nothing rosy about a debt incurred while trying to impress a lover. Find out how you can avoid being indebted in the name of love on Ilungalalako this coming Monday at 12 midday. The show repeats on Thursday night at 11 on SABC One. At SAFM Radio and at Ashraf Garda on Twitter. Paul Oslia with me, so we'll get to some connections if you wish to engage with her just now. So let's just get the facts right again. So you went abroad 2000 and? I think it was 2004. Okay. And unemployed, freelancer. How long did you freelance for? For about eight months, eight, nine months. All right. And when you were sending out these emails to South African uh, media houses, how often were they biting or were they ignoring you? Well, I remember Katie Katapodis of 702. Mm-hmm. And she had uh, she received the email. And the next morning, she contacted me and just said, I saw you on SABC last night. Unfortunately, there was that blacklisting saga. And I was one of the people on it. So it had come to my attention that SABC wasn't really going to use me anymore. Um, and she said, I saw you on SABC last night. Um, are you available to work for us? Because it could be a conflict of interest. And I mm. said, Katie, I'd love to. She said, well, fine. This is the fastest I've ever employed somebody. So you You're going to be on air in 30 seconds. Okay. But I mean, in effect, it is a one-off, right? It's, as it, a free started, it started as a one-off. And even today, though, I string for um, Eyewitness News. So it started then. Um, and all the years, even though I'm reporting for RT, I've kept the gig with Eyewitness News. Okay. And I appreciate that because it keeps me a little bit in touch with South Africans. And, you know, you asked if people remember me from SABC. I, sometimes people... 
recognize my voice more for my witness news than, <laughs> well, than yeah. all the hours I've the put in at Russia Today. <laughs> all right, so, so that was the, the initial part. Then Russia Today from what year until now? So Russia Today would have been the end of 2004 until now, yeah. So, okay, so 14 years. 14 years. Well, so when you wanted international experience, uh, for the reasons you mentioned earlier, why then the Middle East? You could have chosen the USA. You could have chosen a dull country like uh, like Australia or something along that it line. Seemed, why, why the Middle East? It seemed exciting. It seemed, firstly, it was always in the news. Um, my father always says that maybe it was something in the vegetables he gave me as a kid that mm, made me mm, seem attracted mm. to going to war zones. I know that is a contradiction. You mentioned that. And I, I heard myself once saying to a friend, I've always dreamed of being a war correspondent. And he was like, no, Paula, you never dreamed of being a war correspondent. <laughs> so it's something that kind of evolved. Um, Christina Amanpour was always, always a model of, you mm, know, mm. Someone I, I looked up to. I, I think for all of us. Uh, maybe, amazing, yeah. yeah. And I don't know. It just felt like there were stories there. You would switch on the news, and if the big stories always seem to be happening in the Middle East, um, and there must have been something, and there is still today, to be honest. Something about being in a conflict and the adrenaline and the excitement and and international news gravitates towards the Middle East. So it well, felt well, like well, a place well, I wanted to go absolutely. to. Absolutely. So so let's talk about the type of work that that you've done. I mean and. and do you still do the same type of work that you were doing you know, over 10, 14 years, or has that changed? The Arab Spring was a huge story. So when the Arab Spring happened, I was traveling so much. Um, you know, they, the Russians could send me to Egypt for one day, and then the next day I could be on a plane somewhere else. Mm-hmm. There was even a time when I felt that I was doing too much traveling. You, you kind of lose a sense of having a stable home life because you're living out of a suitcase and you're always in a plane. And we have the term parachute journalism, which is literally you arrive in a country, you have a conversation with the taxi driver on the way from the airport to the studio. He briefs you on whatever he briefs you. And then you go on air and you say, well, local people have been telling me. Wow. Um, So, there was definitely a huge, uh, a huge amount of news happening during the Arab Spring. And I did a lot more traveling in those days. And, and as I say, I, I basically covered the whole Arab Spring from the front line for, for the Russian television. Nowadays, I don't seem to be going to conflicts as often as I used to. I do a lot more conferences, a lot more kind of reflection and thinking. I do some training. Maybe that's the way we all evolve. I don't know. I, I seem more, to be doing more... more, more Less parachuting, more safe and stable jobs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but but I, you know, I would hope, I would, I would hate to think that the parachuting has ended. But I also think journalism has changed. Firstly, when I started with Russia Today. 14 years ago, we never had Twitter. We, we, mm, we mm, never, I mean, we didn't use emails to the way we do today. And also international news is, it has become very expensive and new technology has changed the industry. So when I started at SABC, we would go out a crew of me, a cameraman, sometimes even a producer. Nowadays, because of the costs, many international channels expect one person to do everything. So I do know how to edit, I do know how to film, and I can be a one-person video journalist. We don't do that for Russia today, but I do have those skills. Um, and so you find in the Middle East, a lot of people are, it's a team of one. And you also find that a lot, that the freelance industry is huge because it's cheaper for a foreign network to employ somebody who's already on, in Syria. On the turn, yeah. And then the other challenge, of course, is with uh, social media. Why and this is a question, you know, I'm sure editors around the world are asking themselves, why would my editors in Moscow risk my life, 
pay all my expenses, send me to Syria, and I get there maybe a day later after some story has happened, and they've already got all the pictures on social media, and I'm never going to get those kind of pictures okay, so because I impo- wasn't there in the moment. That's an important shift compared to before, right? Completely. It's yeah. a completely different industry. The other thing that's also changed is journalism has become more dangerous. Years ago, there was this idea and the notion that the journalist is the messenger. Mm. You're an objective presenter of news. So if you look at a war, at war zone, war reporting, the journalists would go there and there was almost a respect from the two sides or three sides or whatever that you don't touch the journalist. The journalist is reporting the story. Today, the journalist has become the target. Why, why is that the case? I think it's a number of reasons. Number one, I think you have channels like Russia Today and let's say the Turkish channel and BBC and CNN and channels are aligned to a certain agenda. So I am a Russian government channel. We present the Russian point of view. Now, there are parts in the parts of the world where if I go, it is ex- extremely risky to be perceived to be working for a Russian television channel because they hate the Russian politics. And it's, it's true for every network. So I think because you've got this plethora of, of stations that are aligned to a particular point mm. of view, the journalists are perceived not as being neutral pursuers of the news, but rather they sometimes call us foot soldiers for the, the channels we work for. So that's And the therefore one. foot soldiers for the countries as 100%. well. hundred percent. So, yeah. so number one, that's the problem. Number two, in terms of why journalism has become so dangerous, is because of social media. It's very easy to find me. You can follow my tweets, you can see where mm-hmm. I am, and there's, a, there's almost a confidence um, in terms of people harassing you online. This is something that I am quite involved in with the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, is looking at harassment of women online. Something like 73% of women journalists, women bloggers are harassed online. When, when I was and what, what type of harassment are you talking about? Because it's, because it's women, it, it has a very um, strong sexual content. So it's like we're going to find you, we're going to rape you, we're going to kill you. And I, I get that kind of harassment, particularly when I covered the conflict in Ukraine. Wow. So working mm. for a Russian channel, there were people who obviously supported the Ukrainian side who used to send me death threats, basically. We'll find your family in South Africa, we'll kill them, we'll rip your head from your body. And there's almost a kind of safety in saying it online that they wouldn't be able to say if we were face-to-face. Mm. And I think that's also made journalists, um, journalism more dangerous, is that on the one hand, it's good that as journalists, we're closer to our listeners and our viewers. But on the other hand, we, 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 and again, it's wonderful that we've empowered them and they're telling us mm. our stories, but we've also kind of blurred the line in terms of security. What, what about the... You know, the flip side of being the messenger that isn't it that besides the, the bureaus that journalists are targeted because they being they proceed increasingly so as, as taking up a particular position and, and amplifying that position and driving it home no matter what. It's, it's exactly the debates we're having in international journalism circles. So these conferences I go to at the OSCE, I'll stand up and I'll say, I am a legitimate journalist, I have experience, and I choose to work for a channel that represents the Russian point of view. If you don't like the Russian point of view, don't watch the channel. But don't criticize me and say I'm not a journalist because I'm working for a particular point of view. Because if you really boil it down to, if you really boil it down, how many complete, what is independent journalists? And how many independent news networks are there? Whether you prescribe to the advertising, whether you prescribe to if you're a state channel, every, every network has a particular slant. Why I'm comfortable working for Russia today is because they say we are the Russian point of view. Now, people say to me, well, then how can we know what's really happening in the world? My answer is always, well, watch as many outlets as you can. Mm-hmm. And again, let's go back to the Ukrainian conflict. Because I was working for a Russian network, I wasn't allowed in um, in Western Ukraine, which is pro-Kiev. They hated the Russians, and they saw me as a foot soldier. So even if I wanted to go there, we couldn't get that perspective of the story. I was actually forced to only tell the story on the east of the country, which is the pro-Russian story. 
BBC and CNN. And forced by... Forced, forced, by, by, forced by the authorities there, okay. by threats that if we find Russian journalists, we're going to beat them up. I was deported from Ukraine. I, I, um, I'm banned from going back for five years. So it's a very blurry line in terms of, you know, are you a journalist? And it's not a blurry line for me, but it's a blurry line for how people perceive you and, and deal with you. So if you wanted to know the Russian perspective of Ukraine, you'd watch Russia Today. If you wanted to know the Kiev perspective, which was closely aligned with Europe, you would watch the BBC and CNN. Mm. So I think that's what's happened to journalism is we've become quite polarized. I, th- I don't think – I think objective journalism is maybe an ideal we all subscribe so to. But I don't, really to, think, yeah. I don't really think it's realistic today. I think we are very much driven by opinion journalism. So are you less objective and more opinionated? I think I am a journalist in what I do. So, so what is a journalist? I always try and show both sides of the story in the location that I'm in. I, am, I try and be as fair and accurate to the people that I interview because I think my responsibility is to them. You, know, you, 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 you have faith in me that you're telling me your story. So I have a responsibility as a journalist to reflect that story as accurately as I can. And I have a responsibility to the viewers to be as honest and fair in my story. But the question is in the stories we select to choose. So when I'm in eastern Ukraine and I'm telling stories that have a pro-Russian slant, yes, it's journalism and yes, it's accurate what I'm doing, but I'm not telling another story. But that other story is being told on another channel who's not telling the stories I'm telling. So when you tell it, you tell it objectively. But sometimes you are the, subjective by omitting... I'm, I'm subjective in the topic view. I choose to tell. Or the, okay. but, but, but I think everybody is. The people you choose to interview. You know, why am I interviewing this person and not that person? Another question could be me as a South African. I remember being picked out by Ukrainian journalists and saying, you're coming here to Ukraine to talk about a conflict that you don't even... You're not connected to. Uh, so, so that begs another question. Do we have the right to report on conflicts that are parachute journalism that we don't know so much about. And your answer? Monsoons, we definitely do. I think there's a role for both. I think there's a role for local journalists who perhaps are more ingrained in the issues and understand the issues. And there's definitely a role for myself, like a foreign correspondent, because not necessarily you, but let's say an average South African might not understand all the ins and outs Mm, of the mm, Ukrainian mm. conflict. So a local journalist from Ukraine loses that connection with them because, because they, they don't, don't really understand yeah. yeah they don't understand where where the audience is coming from so i am that audience russian television is for people who speak english and are interested in the russian point of view so i am the channel is for people like myself i understand my audience and i'm trying to bring them news in language uh, that they understand in context that they understand and with the amount of information they'll understand you don't okay. want to bombard your audience lots to come out of that 0891104207 there's a couple of SMSs I'll read out just now but if you wish to call in and engage with Paulus Leo it's 0891104207 if you wish to tweet me then you can do that right away hashtag SFM viewpoints tag me Ashraf Ganda tag SFM radio tag Paulus Leo as well and uh, SMS is 40938 I just want to stay with the Russian part that you said, right? So, by giving the Russian point of view, you don't speak Russian. You've been very clear that it's an English channel. But do you do you think Russian? I don't think necessarily because I I, I think I think South African, and I think I think female. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's often a question people ask me is like, for example, going to conflict zones is a dangerous being a woman. We can get onto that in a moment, but I, I think your upbringing. I lived in South Africa most of my life and I I see the world through South African eyes. I see the world through the eyes of a woman. And I think as much as we try to be objective, you are influenced. You have to be without even being aware of it. And yet if you've been out for such a long time, doesn't that change? It does in a way. 
It's interesting you ask me that because when I come back home, and South Africa will always be home, and I'm, I'm here now for my dad's 80th birthday, mm. um, I notice that I don't feel as South African as I used to when I lived here because you suddenly notice things that you, you didn't notice things change. And then, you know, you come back and I, I drive past the old neighborhood where I grew up and it's just a little bit different. And I didn't notice a changing in terms of houses being torn down and office blocks being put up and then suddenly they're there. Did you, did you live around Waverly Girls or Highlands yeah. North? Yeah, I, I grew your, up in Highlands North. Is that North. your beat? Balfour yep. Park Shopping Center? Actually, or, no, pick or, and pay. Well, <laughs> well it, it, used the, the football, it used to be the football club. I remember That's that. And Highlands I remember the Park vegetable garden there. Ago, yeah. So I don't think I... I, th- I, don't think I think Russian because I think that's part of the culture and the upbringing and sometimes I don't always understand you know I'll discuss with my editors this is our perspective and I'm not always a hundred percent tuned into it before we have that conversation but I definitely understand the Russian perspective of the world a lot more than I did 14 years ago and the Russians definitely feel that they get a, a bad handling by the mainstream media. Again, the whole motivation for the Russian president to set up this channel was that he felt if you watch Western media and you watch English-speaking media, people who are representing the Russian point of view are not Russians. And he wanted mm-hmm. Russians to talk about their own country and their own politics, but in a language that audiences can understand. Okay, so, so to ask the same thing differently, do you feel you're part of, of the propaganda of, of Russia as a nation? No, because I think Firstly, I, I think propaganda is a difficult word because the minute you say propaganda, you, you discount me as a journalist. And what is one person's propaganda is another person's truth. So we must be careful with the word propaganda. But it's, I mean, it's fair that you use it because that's the criticism against Absolutely. Russia today. You know, a Ukrainian journalist sitting here will definitely tell you she's a propaganda tool. Um, but, but for me, it's about being honest about what what I'm doing. So if my channel purported to tell the entire objective truth, both sides of the story, I would have a problem with that. But the channel's called Russia Today. You go onto the website, you listen to the the way it advertises itself. It is the Russian point of view. So you know you're getting the Russian point of view. We're not hiding away from it. It's not a channel. I don't want to criticize BBC, but people would say like BBC purports to be an independent channel, but it also represents, on the other hand, a very specific point of view. Absolutely, and, and it is British. I it mean, is British. So, so, you know, British journalists would sometimes say to me, you're not a real journalist, and it's not fair. It's, <laughs> it's just not fair. Well, I agree with you on that one there. <laughs> get your headphones on. Let's get some calls. Aubrey in Cape Town, welcome to the show. Hi, Aubrey. Hey, hi, Ashraf. Hi, Paula. Yeah, good talking to you. Yes. No, no, no. Uh, I, um, I just wanted, it's, mine is like, it's a comment. And uh, also to say, I'm, I'm, I'm a very, I'm a very big fan of Russian TV, RT, RT TV and uh, I follow what is going on there. The question for Paula, I wanted to find out what is the opinion about South African media in general? Because what I, uh, I'll be very specific, because here in South Africa, it looks like we have a, a problem where we follow one narrative. And if you try and differ, uh, you are labeled uh, different uh, names. Uh, in the recent future, maybe you, you, you recall there was a 407 channel that was literally closed because it took a different uh, narrative to, 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 to the other channels. And uh, so that's, 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 that's where I wanted to find out what's a comment there. Okay, let, let's find out. Thanks for that call, Aubrey. Okay, your take on South African media from because you're seeing it from a distance now. Well, firstly, I'm not so involved in the South African community, so mm. I kind of parachute in to go back mm. to that word and parachute out. But in terms of 
the South African media, I don't think I can comment from a Russian point of view in terms of whether it allows for enough diversity. That's something that you could comment on more. My, my comment generally would be that if people feel that there's not diver- enough diversity in the media, that's exactly what the Russians did. They set up their own channel. That's what TRT has done. The Turks have done. So Al-Jazeera, same thing. Al-Jazeera, the same thing as well. So, And Al-Jazeera used to be the leading channel in terms of what's happening in the Middle East. And it's not perceived, unfortunately, so much like that anymore. Why, why do you think that's the case? I think... Um, uh, I think part of it might be that, look, every channel has biases. So Al Jazeera is perceived as supporting the, the government of Doha and coming from a particular point of view. I was in Egypt when the Arab Spring happened and they closed down the offices of Al Jazeera. Because I remember it supported, watching that Friday afternoon in Cairo. Absolutely. Yeah. They, you know, it supported the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm. So... It, Again, goes back to what I was saying. Every channel has an allegiance. I think part of it is that Al Jazeera English was much more, was very popular um, and much more popular in the past. But I think it might also just be that there's just so many networks out there. It, when I started with Russia Today, you basically had CNN and BBC if you wanted to talk about the big networks that, that, that you could possibly get employment right, with. Yeah. Today you have TRT, Russia Today, Al Jazeera, France 24. You name it, there's a channel. It's almost like every country that wants to put across its there's point of view sets well. up a channel. Is, yeah, is, isn't that the way to go? That, that in fact, the idea of, of a channel giving two sides of the story is out, uh, but it's almost as biased as, I'm just thinking about football clubs, because they've all got their own soccer channels. So that's their perspective. Of course, they're going to do it responsibly. Otherwise, you're not going to tune in. So, but that's, that's how they're going to do it. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting conversation because, yes, but on the other hand, are we not preaching to the converted? And in that sense, I mean, I would like to think people come and listen to Russia Today or watch Russia Today because they are interested in the Russian point of view. But I'm not convinced that happens. I think for someone to switch onto Russia Today, they have to be open to the Russian point of view to begin with. And I sometimes ask myself, all the money that Moscow spends, we're not just a 24-hour channel in English. We're Mm -hmm. 24-hour Spanish, Arabic, French, German. We have like seven outlets. Are we are we really changing? And and here the we is working for the Russians. Are they really changing opinions, or are they talking to people who were already open to those perspectives? And all they're doing really is reinforcing an opinion people had. So on the one hand, I think it's wonderful that we have all these networks and all these different points of view. But on the other hand, I'm not a hundred percent sure it leads to more debate and conversation. Sometimes I think it leads to people becoming more entrenched in their particular point of views and just feeling more confident about those views because they have a channel to watch that supports them. It's, it's, it's the converse where we have guests on air and people will say, well, why would you get this person? You know how ridiculous that person's point of view. And I find that always very insulting to us. So that suggests that we shouldn't get them because we don't agree with them. Whereas the reality is we have to speak to to everybody. Tell, tell me then about, you know, when... Uh, Okay, embedded journalism. Tell me about that. Where, where does that differ? Embedded journalism. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, more and more journalists are being killed every year. It, it relates to what I said about the journalists not being perceived, being perceived as independent. I just want to give you an aside as a story. When I was in Ukraine, I was on the front line with pro-Russian fighters, and I had a bulletproof jacket on, as, as one does, and I'd put the word press on it. So it was an identification that I'm a journalist. And the fighters I was with asked me to take that word press off because they believed that the Ukrainian soldiers who were firing at them would notice the word press and would deliberately target me. And by extension, I was endangering them. Now, so so that just gives you an idea. And that's bizarre I mean, when, you, I mean, when you heard it, that the first time. It was so. bizarre, but it, it really is becoming more and more that journalists are being targeted for being journalists for all the reasons we've already spoken about. Now, there used to be a time where wars were also different. If you think back to the Soviet time, you kind of had two sides at war. Today, there are so many players. If I go to Syria, it's not always clear which part of Syria I'm in. Am I in the part that 
supports Bashar al-Assad, the president, and by extension, Russia, and it would be okay to be Russian television? Or am I on the side that's supporting the rebels? And which rebels? Are they the rebels that are being supported by Turkey? Are they the rebels that are being supported by Saudi Arabia? And you can cross those front lines in a matter of minutes. Mm. You can be driving up to a checkpoint, and, and there's that moment where you trying to figure out very, very quickly, what is my story? Because sometimes I go there and I don't say I'm Russian TV. I say I'm a South African journalist. And, and that's another whole conversation in terms of ethics. You know, is it okay? But if it's your mm. safety, I think it is okay. So the front lines are changing. It's not so clear who who's fighting who. And hence, it's not so easy to go to a war zone and be an independent journalist. And more and more, we do become embedded. So, so you need So you need, and it's, it's unfortunate, because when I'm in Syria, I go with the Russian army or with the Syrian army. Now, if you're with the Russian army or the Syrian army, you're not really going to go and talk negatively about the people you're with, even if you wanted to. Um, or alternatively, there's that, you, you start identifying with the people. These soldiers, this was an interesting scenario. I was in Afghanistan with the American army okay. working for Russia today, and they were like, we, we were worried before you came how we'd talk to you because we thought that you would only speak Russian. Now, we were doing stories that were quite critical of the American involvement in Afghanistan. Mm. And it was, it was a hard one for me because here were the soldiers that I was going out with on embeds. And they were basically risking their lives because they had to look after the journalists who were in their keep. At the same time, I'm very critical of what they're doing there in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So it was a hard balancing what, act. What happened then? What happened was that in those days, you don't have social media like you have today. <laughs> so they weren't aware of the kind of stories that I was doing immediately. A lot immediately. more difficult now, absolutely. <laughs> today, you get, called, you get called up on every second. You can, yeah, you, you're approachable every second I, of the I day. I can imagine. There's a couple of comments. Um, Ashraf, Ashraf, I'm a first-year DUT student who's doing journalism. I just want to say I'm so imbued by your guests there. Please ask your guests there, what is... What does social media help journalists ask better questions to tell better stories, or does it take journalists? Does it take the journalist job? I get, I get a sense of what you say yeah. from uh, Skumbuzo in Devon. Did you get that? I understand that. Social media is such a mixed ball of, of marbles because on the one hand, I get lovely ideas for stories from my, my followers, for example, on Twitter. I get encouragement. I get feedback. I feel so connected to the people who are watching or listening to me on whatever outlet it is. On the other hand, it has changed the whole world of social media. When the Arab Spring began in Egypt, well, it started in Tunisia and then it picked up very quickly in Egypt. They called it the Twitter revolution. And Twitter was still quite new then. And everybody started using Twitter. And the challenge we had at that, at that time was how do you know who to trust on Twitter, which is still a very mm, relevant mm, tool today. Mm, mm. So you get all these tweets and you get all these followers, but you have to be very careful in terms of what is fake news and what is not fake news, which is another huge challenge that we're, 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 we're struggling with today. The main problem with social media, I don't think that I will – my job will exist whether it's five years from now or 10 years from now. I think the job of the foreign correspondent is a dying profession. I think for the reasons I outlined earlier that news networks are, are more reluctant, whether it's financial or safety concerns, to send people to war zones. And I do think if you look at Syria, again, you get the pictures almost in instant time coming from Syria that you can never get from a journalist who will arrive there a day later. Mm. Having said that, it opens the floodgates to fake news. It opens the, ga the floodgates yeah. to how do you know this, the pictures are really what, what they say they are and coming where they're coming from. And also it lends itself to bad journalism because – 
So people get this, this, this barrage of photos of people being killed in Syria, but what does it mean? And I think that's where journalism will evolve to, is that maybe my job will become more selecting what's fake and not fake and providing more contextualization. Mm. So you're getting these pictures, what does it mean? Having said that, I'm also open to the argument that people do want a journalist on the ground. If people trust me, they'd probably trust my reporting more in Syria Absolutely. than they would from an ordinary person in Syria so, who so suddenly starts tweeting. So if you, look at, if you look at South Africa, for example, like right now, so, so maybe if, if if not the foreign journalist, then then it's the local journalist who's effectively sending out information to foreign lands, like in your case, Russia, right? And, and it's not local. necessarily local journalist. It could just be a local person who happens to well, be in that local, place. Yeah. The local. Um, but then it begs the question, what is journalism? Can everybody be a journalist? Because there's almost this, this idea today that everybody can. Because if you have an iPhone or mm. any kind of cell phone, you take pictures, you tweet, and you can start your commentary. I mean, is, that, is that a citizen journalist or is that something else now? It's partly citizen journalism, but I can see with something like Russia Today, we are using more and more pictures, videos that we find on YouTube that are not necessarily citizen journalists. could just be a person who was in the wrong place at the right time or the right place at the wrong time how, how and got trust? a video. Well, what, that's what, exactly... What's that factor around them? Yeah, well, that's exactly so are they that. almost, if not journalists, accredited locals? Yeah, well, that's the challenge. And that's where I think journalism is going. And that's where I think social media is a double-edged sword because I think, again, that my role in the future, that of the foreign correspondent, might be to sift through that kind of material and maybe verify it. That's becoming a huge thing as the verification of information coming out. And maybe less first-hand reporting. And I think the one downside of social media is journalists are using other stories. We use the internet maybe too much. I remember when I started at SABC, we actually went into the field and did stories. Mm -hmm. You go there and you interview people. Now what happens is somebody's interviewed somebody, it's online, and you requote that and you requote that and you and if there's a factual area error or if it's, it's fake across the board exactly yeah. if it's fake in that first initial report by the time it's you know been reported another 500 times it, it, it's it's a huge <laughs> problem okay there's a there's a question uh let me just see if i've got that there uh okay well here's one from uh, miles saying uh, miss Slear, i beg your pardon okay an exclamation mark i'll read this it says are you telling me there is no such thing as propaganda what are you saying about Nazi Dr. Goebbels? Was he telling the truth? Your station is no different from Pravda, a mouthpiece of Russian government, a propaganda machine. I mean, you want to add to that? I mean, you've answered that already, but you want to just add to that? It's a really hard, of course, there's something like propaganda, but I, I go back to the point of view of one person's propaganda is another person's truth. So Nazi propaganda was propaganda that was, was, was geared towards was geared towards inflammation, eventually killings, eventually targeting certain people and saying that they're not good enough and therefore justified murder. What, what, is, the Russia, what is Russia today? Russia today is not justifying murder. It's, it's presenting a different point of view. And I think that would be the fine line. I think the fine line would be when you, when you cross the line into, into behavior that could lead to killing, death, mm -hmm. destruction. I think it's that question of freedom of speech. And when does freedom of speech become problematic? It becomes problematic when it becomes hate speech and it becomes that kind of um, arena. So, so what was it like for you then reporting from Israel, Palestine, where, where people have such divided views? And, and, and if you ask 10 people today as to what the story is, you know you're going to get very, very different 20, stories. 20 Which points stories, of view. Yeah. Look, on a personal level, it's been interesting because it's also challenged a lot of maybe the beliefs I had before I went to South Africa, uh, before I um, 
before I moved across to the region, and I have spent a lot of time reporting in Israel and Palestine and Gaza, I, I find sometimes I ask myself the question whether the media is doing a disservice or a service to the conflict there. Because I think sometimes what happens is that Israelis and Palestinians don't really engage with each other. So if you're an Israeli, you're not allowed into Palestine unless you unless you have special permission and it's legally forbidden and vice versa the other way. So unfortunately what happens is that the only time Israelis and Palestinians meet is maybe if a Palestinian has permission to work in Israel, which means that the person's a laborer and they're not of the same kind of necessarily intellectual conversation that you want to have Israelis and Palestinians mm. engaging on. There was a project I was involved in a few years ago. Do you remember Ram FM? It was set up by Izzy Kirsch from 702 mm, yeah, and he was trying to get Israelis and Palestinians to talk to each other mm. and it didn't work. So well, why didn't it work? It, it part part of the reason was that it was broadcast in English and there wasn't there wasn't that kind of level of comfort um, in speaking English and so you couldn't really have that kind of engagement because your Israelis was maybe more Israeli speaking English than Palestinians and the and the Palestinians who were speaking English were not necessarily the, the majority and you wanted to talk to kind of the the mass Absolutely. on both sides. You're saying that, that some of your views then previews change when you got there how did it change i think when you when you spend a lot of time in a place you you start to understand where people are coming from so 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 before going across i, I had the sense that whenever Israel does something, it justifies it with security. And I used to ask the question, well, you know, if you justify something with security, then you can justify anything because how does anybody else know mm. if that really is a security concern for you? Spending time with Israelis, they really are afraid. And that's genuine. The, the fear now is the fear of Iran. And a lot of my reporting and a lot of the focus in terms of the politics around there is perhaps less about the Israeli-Palestinian struggle and more about what's going to happen vis-a-vis -vis Iran. Mm. Do, they, do they ever get, and I'm just rushing you because there's a minute to go, do they ever get into a situation, and I mean Israelis and Palestinians, where they all say, how did we get ourselves into this mess? Without getting into the rights and wrongs, because effectively both will lose. Right? Yeah. How did we get ourselves into a situation where we are going through torment and torture for so many no, years. No, I haven't encountered that. And maybe a better way to answer when you say, how did my views change? I was so excited to be part of the change in South Africa. It was when I worked at the SABC. And I had gone across thinking, well, we, we created a new country here. Why can't Israelis and Palestinians do the same? And when you're over there, and this will answer your question more directly, there is so much mistrust from the two sides. And there's so much history and so much hatred, to be honest, that I think they're a far way from where we were in South Africa in terms of coming together. And this is where South Africa could actually play a role. South Africa should be the rainbow nation and saying, look, if we could do it, we can do it for you. And I've always felt that South Africa should play a bigger role in engaging both sides because we, we, we have we can lead by example. And if we could engage both sides with the credibility we have, maybe, maybe they'll listen. Well, wow. and, and there's, desper <laughs> there's desperation in that, and I, and I get that. Just lastly for you, Paula Slea, what's next on your agenda? Besides your dad's birthday, was it it's done already? Yes, it's done. We okay. had a lovely big party. Uh, and wonderful. What's next for you? I, I love the reporting. I love journalism. I'm sure you do as well. I feel incredibly privileged and honored to have covered some of the biggest stories we have. I love being a South African and traveling the world and people saying, what, you're South African? Like, you know, I love that. I think I would like to go a little bit more into lecturing, to be honest. Um, and I'm slowly starting to do that. And to be honest, I don't really know. I, every time I come back to South Africa, I think maybe I should come back here. Well, I well, love this country. You, is that on the agenda? 
Not at the moment, but I'm open to it, of okay. course. Well, you never know. Paula Slea, there you are. Thanks for your time. Fascinating talking to her, to you, for the last uh, 45 minutes. So you can check on Russian TV. How do they get you? Online, I suppose, now. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm, at, I'm, at, I'm on Twitter. Okay, well, Twitter, they will find you, certainly. And then all the links for Russian TV that you can see uh, right away. Let's get to um, the regular, the print, of course.